Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Greetings and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts. This is our second episode. I am Derek. I have my other two Trekkie hosts with me, uh, Jeremy and Greg. Do you guys want to say hi? Hello. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. We are here to talk about Star Trek Discovery, episode two, Context is for Kings. And if you missed our discussion on the first, uh, well, I guess it's episode three of Discovery, but if you missed our talk about the first two episodes of Discovery last week, catch our first episode. You can find it at heroespodcast.com. We're also now on iTunes, Google Play, and Blog Talk Radio, so go check that out. Um, Before we dive into spoiler details, why don't we go ahead and kind of give our just spoiler-free first impressions of episode three context is for Kings. Greg, why don't you start us off? Uh, well, I really enjoyed it. The, um, well, I mean, it was it's my favorite of the three episodes they've aired by far. And something Jeremy mentioned last week, it's it's kind of the the formal opening of Discovery because you got the ship and everything. Um, but I, I I love the new characters, just the action scenes. It felt like an original series episode. Um, the uh, that security lead Rekha Sharma from Battlestar Galactica is in this. I didn't know that. No, that was a pleasant surprise. It was yeah, it was just great seeing her, and she fits the part. And again, I, I'm glad that the uh, it's not much of a spoiler at all. But the the away mission, the the armor, I love seeing that every episode. Yeah, it's such a minor thing to enjoy, but I dig it. Jeremy, how about you? Uh, and so I, I take a little bit of offense of you calling the first two episodes the first two episodes. This is the first episode. <laughs> it is clear this was episode one. This is always what they intended to be episode one. The other two episodes are not in in the chronological order of what they intended, clearly. Because they they played so many things about the the mystery of the discovery and the you know, the the overall mystery arc of of this season and uh, kind of who Michael was, that they clearly portrayed that in such a way that you weren't supposed to know the answers to all of those questions. Because every time the characters interacted and referred to something in the past, it was always like, well, you know, we don't, we're not going to flat out say what it was, but we have feelings about it. Yeah, I'm totally with you guys. The first two episodes definitely are the prelude to Discovery, um, and uh, I'm sure that that's also on purpose. But this episode definitely has a totally different feel. Context is for Kings is different tone, different almost a totally different color scheme as far as cinematography is concerned. There's no lens flare at all <laughs> uh, or anything like that. I uh, I love Captain Lorca. Jason Isaacs does a really good job. The, these new characters they bring on are a lot of fun. Um, 
and I'm very, very curious to see if they can somehow make this all make sense in the Prime timeline, since they are the ones who said it's in that timeline. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely happy with the direction that it's going, and if you were not sure after the first episode or two, I would say give this one a shot. I think it will definitely sell you on continuing the journey. Well, in your comment about Jason Isaacs, one thing, and I know the show is, it's kind of tailored to focus on, you know, Michael Burnham, but Jason Isaacs as a as an actor almost just steals every scene he's in, just because of his, he's got a great that great presence and that great awareness, and he gets into the character and he has the, I, I got to give him credit because he also looks he has the look of a Starfleet captain. Uh, just the scene where they introduce him in his ready room is perfect. It was so good. Well, then let's do this. Let's let's dive into spoilers. You have been warned. If you are concerned about spoilers, give us a pause and then come back later. So let's let's talk a bit about Jason Isaacs. Um, you know, we have to keep in mind that of all of the the main cast, he definitely has played the most imposing characters in the past. I mean, he's. You know, Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter series. He played the bad guy in The Patriot. <laughs> well, and there's no doubt in my mind he's the bad guy in Discovery, too. You think so? Oh, yeah. He's, I mean, it's it's the whole mad scientist, dark secrets, uh, has to lurk in shadows. If it's if it's not, it's a huge misdirect that, that that's what they're trying to play him as, but that's certainly what they're setting up. And he's also kind of got that warrior feel to him. Like, he's seen stuff, but he's at the same time, um, he's that kind of the scientific mind. Which, you know, every Starfleet captain on all the shows has had that kind of their little uh, their little shtick. And we talked about that last week. You know, Picard, kind of the archaeologist, a history fan. And, you know, Kirk, kind of very emotional. And, and Cisco very just aggressive in his own manner. And Lorca kind of... Well, I, I see. I kind of agree with Jeremy because he toes that line of, "All right, I can kind of see what he's doing," and then you think about it five minutes later, like, "Wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> just because it just because it makes sense doesn't make it a good idea." Well, so then that kind of begs the question: Is he an antagonist kind of character, or is the mission of the Discovery kind of against the ideals of the Federation? I feel like we'll get to that as we progress. We should probably hit the plot points. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so we open up on the prison transport, of course. Um, I actually really like that there's a Federation prison jumpsuit that's different than the other prisoner jumpsuits. <laughs> How did you guys feel? They all have to have that little Starfleet thing, but it still looks different. Um, she had the black insignia. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the opening intro with, you know, the, the pilot, you know, oh, there's a problem. I'm going to go check it out. And then you, you blink your eyes and the pilot's just flying away into space. I'm like, well, this is an interesting way to open up the episode. Which again uh, begs the question, is that Lorca's fault? Is is the death of that pilot on his head because he redirected that, that shuttle so where the Discovery could pick it up? I mean, t- yeah. technically, yeah. But at the same time, like when that pilot goes out of the ship, I mean, I just felt like that was a bad personal decision. <laughs> yeah. Well, nobody, nobody discusses it. Like They all agree. They're like, all right, do not bring this up. Just nobody, nobody talked about what happened to that pilot. Um, well, because if the pilot stays on the shuttle, then the pilot lives. Yeah, the pilot lives. Yeah, Lorca wasn't trying to kill anybody. Nope. That's true. Had had the pilot just resigned to his fate and let the 
electric bugs devour the ship, <laughs> he would have been okay, I guess. <laughs> so I guess it kind of then it leads to the question of Lorca's, you know, his reach, his power, uh, because it's you know determined later, of course, that he purposefully redirected the shuttle and purposefully had uh, Michael Burnham transferred. Um, it's interesting because he is a captain, but it feels like he has authority that goes well beyond that. Yeah, yeah almost, almost an unwritten thing of, oh, this, the Federation Council is, is, supports my approach. But yeah, the whole Discovery mission has a very, like, Black Ops, uh, Manhattan Project, Men in Black kind of vibe to it, where everything's very kind of Machiavellian and unlimited resources and no questions asked. Well, so thinking of, like, the Black Ops perspective of it, so when Michael Burnham's getting her kind of introduction to the Discovery and she's walking through the corridors, you see the guy who's guarding a door with a big rifle, and he's got a special shiny Delta Shield. Yeah. Anyone else think that that's Section 31? Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Well, and it would make sense, because it would have to be something along those lines, especially when... Everything we've seen from the prime timeline with deep with Section Thirty One of Deep Space Nine, when the Federation's threatened or they're at war, Section Thirty One is playing a huge part. Yeah, I feel like this might be the birth of Section. Like probably Section Thirty One doesn't exist yet, and it might come out of this. The other thing I was thinking a lot as I mean, and we'll get more into the the secret mission later. But I was wondering if whatever the Discovery ends up doing is part of the the Kittimer Accords with like extreme weaponry that that had to be outlawed well and of course since i'm the big uh the big theory crafting nerd of the theory that will never happen you know the uh the registry number of the discovery is 1031 mm. i yeah. i know it that's gotta be just a fluke but that'd be fun that'd be amazing that'd be amazing if somehow in this time because of the prime timeline if something Lorca does is end up creating Section 31. So, real quick. So, Section 31 does exist in Enterprise, which is about 100 years, 75 years, give or take, before this. True. So, Section 31 is already a thing, um, but they're usually very covert. You know, they have agents. They don't have giant starships that, you know, are kind of plastered with their name on it. I mean, if you give your re- ship a registry of 1031 and you're Section 31, that just seems a little yeah. too on the nose. <laughs> that's a good TV thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. That's I, I completely forgot about the Enterprise reference. Because huh. when it came out after, when they released Enterprise after Voyager and DS9 with all the Section 31 references, it was a good throwback. Well, right. I mean, it, even uh, I think it was uh, Malcolm uh, is kind of recruited by Section Thirty One in the show, and uh, I don't know. I, I know some people had talked of originally when the the Discovery was first shown and it was going to be Registry Ten Thirty One that people just assumed that that was a reference to Section Thirty One, um, but I just that just seems too on the nose. Why would a, a super covert, highly skilled intelligence agency do that? Though that also does seem like the sense of humor of Lorca. I feel like he would just be like, eh, screw it. Call it 1031. <laughs> well, now, he does have the sister ship, the Glen, and the Glen, if you uh, are very careful and look at the the frame-by-frame frame of the explosion of the ship, uh, it appears to be registry 1030. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know. Just built back-to-back. Back. Yeah, I mean, they were sister ships, so that's, you know, something, I guess. Um, yeah. 
but I don't know. I, I guess I just feel like it needs to be Section 31, because otherwise they have to just make up a separate agency. But at the same time, the registry number seems silly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, before we move too far away from it, I do want to point out that uh, the Federation is sending prisoners to, to be slave labor uh, in, in a mining colony. That seems very non-Federation. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, Tom Paris was basically in a place like that. Huh. I'm trying to re- remember which scene it was when McCoy in one of the movies is talking about it, uh, you know, after uh, the trial. And I th- it was four, I think, when he's talking about it. It's bad enough we're going to have to be out mining borite for the rest of our lives. <laughs> so apparently it's a thing now. Starfleet uses just mining labor camps. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of been throughout Trek. Um, there's, of course, the, the EMH holograms when they're decommissioned. They're all used for mining purposes. Tom Paris was at a mining uh, prison. So it's definitely not a new concept for Star Trek. This just shows how far back it goes. That was a big underlying premise of uh, Nemesis is that uh, what's it, the, the Remans were all forced into mining camps. And it's why he hated Picard's freedom so much. It's just like, well, I guess everybody just has to mine everything. Sure. I mean, you think about all the starships that are out there. They use a type of crystal stone for warp drive. Right, and then there's all the yeah. metal and the you know the titanium and those different things that are used. Um, so I would imagine you need massive groups of, of labor forces. I, I guess if you just hadn't seen these these handful of episodes or movies, you might think that it's all done by you know machine. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, that that's definitely not not something new to track. It just shows it goes all the way back to the original series. Um, so, okay, so she's on the ship now. She gets to bump into Saru, and they have kind of a heartfelt moment. Um, I actually really enjoyed that exchange, personally. Do you, do you guys like Saru more or less now after this third episode? It seems like a big change for him. Um, they presented him in the first two episodes as this very cautious, very kind of cowardly character, and now he's kind of, like, real, real ag- aggressive towards Michael. I mean, that's, that's the, another thing that kind of struck me about these are that Michael is presented as the first ever mutineer of Starfleet, which is a big deal. She's the historic first mutiny in all of Starfleet. Um, but it, it's also over the six months that have passed since she did everything in the first two episodes, she's become famous for, for starting the Klingon War. But if I recall correctly, she didn't really start the Klingon War. Yeah. Like, her her actions didn't cause that, so I'm not sure how she got that rep. I Yeah, uh, to go from mutiny to you started the war is... I, I'm not entirely sure about that either. No, it's a big leap. I mean, maybe she killed the Klingon, uh, but they would have started it anyway. I think that's kind of the point, right, is they, they've used her as the excuse. You know, she fired the first shot, so to speak, because she killed that the, the, the torchbearer. Um the mutiny thing, you know, of course that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. Uh, it's a little outside of continuity due to basically a throwaway, a throwaway line in an episode of the original series, but okay. Um, I actually think it's interesting to see the new Saru because I feel like all of his timidness has now been completely justified thanks to Michael. And so yeah, he feels confident. There's that, but he, he's confident, but... I'm actually, I'm probably in the, uh, the 
I don't know how to describe it, the minority of his character right now, because I did actually, I did not care for him in this episode. Yeah? Um, and the main reason why is because in the first two, they kind of treat him as a certain thing, and his species is the way it is, because they're used to being predators. Yeah. And just, and just that now he's the first officer for, you know, Captain Lorca, and I'm like, this guy would never survive under Lorca for long. Well, it seems like they drained away a lot of what made him special in the first two episodes. Like, he, di- he didn't have that personality anymore. I guess I just, I felt like it was designed as, you know, it's kind of the Disney concept of how you make your characters grow very quickly, kill off their parents, right? So Saru had to basically watch his captain go through a mutiny and then die saving, you know, trying to save the crew, um, all within a span of a couple of hours, and it it basically justified his entire concept of command and how he would command a vessel, and... With Discovery being as um, covert as it is, doing these experimental things that are incredibly dangerous, as the episode showed by the loss of the Glen, that he needs to be timid. And maybe Lorca likes that because it's almost like a check that we have all of our safeties in place. Our ducks are in a row before we blow up the ship. True, though, again, the long and short of the mutiny as it actually happened was her nerve-pinching the captain, trying to give an order, the order not being followed, and the captain coming out and arresting her. Like, it wasn't it wasn't that impactful as, as far as mutinies go. And for him, for Saru to later dig on Michael for not protecting the captain, I don't know, that just felt like... I don't know, so much seems to be put on her shoulders when the first two episodes show her, it, you know doing what she thinks is right with, with the, the mind link saying to attack the Klingons first and, and doing it for the betterment of, I don't know. That's, that's kind of why I, I, I think people should watch this episode first is because with those questions still hanging, you don't really know that justification, but having seen those two episodes, I'm like, well, that wasn't Michael's fault. Don't blame Michael for that. She, the captain got killed in a fight and it wasn't Michael's fault. Um, I'm not sure Saru was being completely literal. I think he meant more of betraying their captain. Uh, because whether or not Michael thought what she was doing the right thing, she still betrayed her commanding officer. And it didn't go very far because Saru essentially put his foot down, which was, I think, the beginning of his growth to where he is now, because it's six months later in episode three, uh, that... It was still that betrayal, the fact that Saru could no longer trust her, that essentially Michael is a loose cannon. If Michael doesn't get to do what Michael wants to do, then she'll just try and subdue anybody in her way. Yeah, and I, I agree in that um, his his initial contact with her saying that he thinks she's dangerous, but later on when he says, I- I'm going to keep my captain safer than you kept yours, I don't know, that's, that's the one where I was like, well, she was fighting, I don't know. I don't know. That just felt rough. It felt unnecessary. Well, who, whose idea? I can't remember now, of course, because this was uh, last week. But whose idea was it to go over to the Klingon ship? Was it was it Michael's or was it Giorgio's? I thought I because they made the comment that they didn't have any shuttlecraft or worker bees that could get there. I think it was Michael's that said, "I can get there with the uh, with one of the spacesuits." Because I know Saru didn't want her to go, but she still went anyways. Well, I'm sorry, I meant uh, towards the end when they go over to the Klingon vessel and Giorgio gets killed. Sorry. No, that was my bad. I was just mixing up stories for a second. Yeah, I think it was it was a little bit of both of them. 
because it was, I think Giorgio brought it up, but it was Michaels that said, look, if we can capture the Emperor, that'll weaken them even more. And maybe that's what Saru is referring to, that from Saru's perspective, Giorgio was put in in significant danger for little reward possibility. Or maybe it was just dramatic writing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, so I guess we should probably keep keep moving along then. So, I, I have to ask, how do you guys feel about our introduction to Lorca? His, his office, you know, the lights, the tribble, the fortune cookies, the whole nine. He's a fortune cookie magnet. I, I, I just love that <laughs> background. His family's well, well into the future. There's still people getting rich off fortune cookies, even even in all of the, the tumult that we saw in, like, uh, First Contact, where Earth is in disarray. Somehow the fortune cookie trade kept going. <laughs> I, I did like how they had the um, the light imagery and, the, and the, the astronomy imagery that was on his eyes when he was looking out the, outside to the window. Yeah, I, beautiful I, shot. I, it was, that's what I mean. It was such a gorgeous shot. And even the way he had his standing desk and that uh, Jeremy kind of mentioned it earlier, I think, about the the little intimidation factor of walking into his office. And and also him playing it up, it's like, oh, isn't it dramatic how I have to have the lights? It's just such a such a good mad scientist kind of, like, creepy vibe. Well, and I, <laughs> and I was watching, like, while well, I was watching the After Trek part, and I just, you know, I couldn't finish it. It's just not as entertaining to me. They were talking a little bit about the design of his office and, like, the sloping, um, the sloping ceiling is because of where the office is located on the ship, and that's the actual hall. So I'm like, they're actually paying that much attention to the details of the construction, I think is really cool. Yeah. I love that. Um, because T- TNG had to do that pretty early on, because one of the very first, I think it's like the first shot we really see, is uh, Picard standing in the window of his ready room. Yeah. Yep. Right? And so, you know, they had to think about where is that window placed on the ship? And I appreciate that level of detail in Lorca's office as well. Um I do think the fortune cookie thing is kind of funny because for most of our captains, we learn that type of stuff. Like, you know, Picard's family has the winery in France and Cisco's father owns the restaurant in Louisiana. Um, we don't learn quite as much about Janeway or Archer's family history. Uh, you know, Archer's dad, of course, invented the warp five drive, um, you know, and things of that nature. And I guess Janeway's uh, ancestors helped colonize Mars, so you, you, we learn all this interesting stuff about them. So I, I, I like that. The Tribble. How did you feel about the Tribble? The only non-pregnant Tribble in history, apparently. Right. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I feel like Norco, Lorca would know to have it neutered or whatever you do in a Tribble. <laughs> That's a good point. And then the poor thing is just stuck there, not, you know, not really able to move, not really able to procreate. It's just there. Uh, that, that ends up into some sketchy territory, though, since Bones says that they're basically born pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Well, that... it's also possible that Lorca went to the Star Trek experience in Vegas, because that's where I got my... my... <laughs> I, I guess for me, I just thought it was a little odd, because Trouble with Tribbles is supposed to be, like, our introduction to that species. The Enterprise crew doesn't even know what they are. And I feel like if the Federation knew how much damage they could do to an agricultural society, the Enterprise would be aware of that. Well, that's just how much of a badass Lorca is. <laughs> am I, am I fortune cookie every day and then just crushes its offspring. Am I just being too picky, maybe? No, nah, picky's what we do. 
Because if you look at the if you look at the rest of his, I don't know. I guess they're calling it the Lorca's Menagerie now, because right. he's got like that Gorn skeleton and a whole bunch yeah. of stuff in there. Which you I love know, the Gorn skeleton. yeah, the Gorn skeleton's amazing because in the Prime timeline they don't meet until the Gorn and Federation don't meet until the arena. The arena. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe he found maybe maybe he got it. Maybe a Federation scientist found it on a planet and said, "Well, you like this stuff. Here you go." Um, and they still have no idea what it is. Maybe Lorne and the Discovery just go around ahead of the Enterprise and just seed the entire universe with all of the troubles that Kirk runs into eventually. <laughs> <laughs> pure antagonist. I see. I, I think part of the, the problem, though, of course, is is that kind of concept of you know what what do the Gorn look like here? Because in the original series, you know, they of course it was a, you know a guy in a suit, uh, but in Enterprise. We get to see the Gorn uh, in, as like these giant CGI lizard creatures with tails and everything. Yeah, and I mean it's not pretty. It was pretty rough CGI, um, which you know I feel like maybe they should have just skipped it. But I'm curious to see what if if we ever see a, a living Gorn, what it looks like. I feel like the the skeleton and the triple are both kind of fanservicey ways of saying like. Here we're acknowledging that these things exist in this shared world, but we're not going to deal with them, aside from having them be background gags. I did have one person uh, mention, uh, what what if the, the whole Tribble thing is the connection to uh, to Mud? Yeah, because they cast Rain Wilson as Mud. Um. Now, I know I know Mud's not the one who introduces the Tribbles. I know that was, uh, was Cyrano Jones, but... They're similar types of characters. They're kind of pirate traitors, you know? Yeah, so. a little extravagant, a little... Kind of a little goofy, a little comedy relief, but still charismatic characters. Yeah. Those are always my favorite Star Trek characters, just the random humans that aren't really affiliated with Starfleet or the Federation that just pop up and are, are up to some kind of shenanigans. Uh, so then, of course, we have the... Uh, we have some other characters. We've got Cadet Tilly, yes. who Tilly. is... Michael's roommate. Um, I've heard so I've seen some people on the internet complain about how can we have someone with allergies in the 22nd, uh, 23rd century, but I actually really loved her character. Well, also her allergies are super specific to space age fabrics. So maybe they got rid of hay fever, but they haven't gotten rid of like polyfoam styrene, whatever fever. Well, yeah, but, and even if you think about it and, you know, uh, Rat the Con. I mean, McCoy gives Kirk a pair of glasses. And he's like, yeah, normal, normally for people your age, I prescribe this. Oh, I'm allergic to that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's just one of those things. The space material, and she's... Uh, I actually like her because she feels like a... Just like a real human. <laughs> like, there's... It's almost like I wonder. I want to meet her in real life and just see if that's just how she is. Turns out she's actually really allergic to stuff. I actually really appreciate, Greg, that you brought up when McCoy gives Kirk the glasses, because I forgot that they had that whole conversation. Um, and so you're right, that's actually like 35 years later, 30 years later. So um, that's perfect, yeah. So it's already canon that we have aller uh, allergies and we haven't quite corrected vision and things like which, that. Which so. gives me hope for the future that, you know, if I somehow survive to when we have space flight, my allergies won't be a problem. There you go. <laughs> the uh, introduction... Billy also introduced another thing which wasn't brought up in the first two episodes of her having a non 
a standard gender binary name in that Tilly was like, oh, you're a woman named Michael. I've never heard of that, which I, I feel like a lot of fans were like, why is why is the female lead character named Michael? But no one mentioned it until this episode, which I mean, it, it shouldn't be that big a deal in the future, but apparently it's a big enough deal to Tilly to actually mention it. Yeah. I mean, she she said what every fan was saying. Yeah. <laughs> I've never met a woman named Michael, except, oh, Michael Burnham, who the, the, you know, the mutineer. Wait a second. Wait a second. Well, and, and Tilly kind of fills the role of the audience, right? A lot of, of shows and movies kind of have that one character that is basically us, you know, in that universe trying to get by. And she's kind of like that. She's She's normal. She has flaws. She has... You know, she gets nervous about stuff, but she overcomes those things and has goals that she really intends to accomplish um, that are big goals, great, awesome goals that she really feels like she'll she'll get to. Um, and I love that she gets to be that character for us and makes the connection of the only the only Michael I know is the mutineer. And you're not her, are you? <laughs> so and, and can we talk about the fact that it's starting to get into more spoilers that one of the things that they're doing is, you know, working on new new kind of engines new kind of transport systems and the captain is jason isaacs you know captain Lorca. I, I, I might be the only person in the world that might still remember this movie right now but he was on event horizon the movie back in what, 95 oh, wow. and his, yes. that was that was another ship experimenting with a new type of travel and it did not go well for anybody well and that was another movie with the uh, the ghost ship uh, yep. trope that we see so much in sci-fi we saw in this episode kind yeah, of. We, we did see in this episode because when they're, when they're on the Glen and it's the flashing lights and everything, I was getting huge, like Event Horizon feels with the with the jump scares and all this stuff. I was like, wait a second, I remember this. Jason, Isaac, <laughs> it's Jason Isaacs again. No, that's a great connection, um, and I think that's that's a pretty good segue. So we find out that the discovery is not unique. It is not one of a kind. It is a cross field class starship that there are at least two of. Because we go aboard the USS Glenn after its accident. Let's, I guess, you know, that's kind of the premise of the show is you've got two ships that are racing each other, essentially, to come up with this new form of quantum entanglement travel. And one ship goes a little too far too fast and warps itself into disfigurement of its crew. Do you think, do you think that, uh, I guess my, my, my question here is, how do you feel about them showing that there's two ships and wiping one out in essentially that first episode? Well, and really quick, did you mention that they're actually the Discovery and the Glen are the cross-field class of vessel? Yes. Well, okay, now the USS Glen, the USS Discovery, now the US and the cross-field class. The cross-field was that famous NASA pilot. <laughs> so, oh. he was, um... That's clever. Because it was him and uh, Jaeger that I thought were the ones competing for constantly who's the fastest man in the world or fastest person in the world. It was Scott. It was Scott Crossfield and Chuck Jaeger. Huh. So hey, <laughs> we'll find a third ship, the uh, ten thirty two, the USS Jaeger. Yeah, which, <laughs> which, would be, which would be amazing. That'd be just more. Of a, you know, and that's the thing. I don't mind fan service like that. You know, I I think it's fun. It's a throwback. It's history. NASA, Space Administration, Starfleet. It's perfect. I mean, I, I wouldn't even consider that uh, fan service. That's that's just how they would probably name it. Also, there is a USS Nick Yeager. It's a, a Battle of Sector 001 from Star Trek First Contact. There was a USS Yeager in the movie. Yeah. Nice. 
Maybe that was the uh, the B or the C. <laughs> We're still using the 150-year-old um, ship. It's possible. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so we, 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 we do have the, the name of the ship. I, I like that it's Crossfield because I, I also feel like that kind of describes the whole the, – the, the saucer section having pieces of it essentially cut out. Like there's a cross section almost of the ship. Um, which is still a weird design choice for me. I, I'm not sure. Like it looks nice. I, I like it, but I'm not sure it makes like logical, practical sense. I wonder if that's going to be like in in the same way that the saucer section can separate on a galaxy class starship. Maybe that's the ring is like the science section. So maybe if if something goes horribly wrong, that that ring can just pop off. Oh. That would be weird. Yeah. Almost like using it as not necessarily like a separation of another ship, but almost just like a big life pod. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. It's an interesting idea. So so they go aboard the Glen, and it's a horror movie for five, ten minutes. Um, I thought they did a really good job with disfiguring, you know, the, the dead crew members. You could really tell that, obviously, something very strange went wrong. Well, they referred to them as having been braided, and when you see the bodies closer up, they have, it looks like braided hair, like... It's they look like pretzels. It's crazy, but they act like they've seen it before. Yeah, the effects and the makeup and the prosthetics and everything they did. It was, I mean, that was top notch. That was for basically Hollywood movie level quality on on the small screen because yeah. it they did it in a way they could have because you know if this was just a B science film in the theaters they could have really just gored it up for gore's sake, but in this case they made it disgusting enough to you know kind of repulse you without going over the top. It was like what Jeremy said, obviously something terrible happened. Oh, and how creepy was the shishing Klingon? That was amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. I, I really actually liked that a lot because it showed for a moment, of course, that the Klingons, you know, yeah, we're at war, but they're also not just like crazy mad, you know, killing machines. They, they're intelligent. They realize whatever is on this ship is a lot more dangerous than us to each other. So let's just chill for a second and figure this out. Well, and Burnham's response of, is he shushing you? I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was just her immediate reaction. I was like, that again, it, staying in character for stuff like that is just great. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, how, so how do you feel about that creature? Whatever, whatever that was supposed to be. Seem like a good generic alien monster. I'm wondering, and this is just me because I, I, okay, so the Glen was traveling, was using the new travel system. So did it pick something up from that realm somehow? Is it is it kind of like the uh, Warhammer 40k lore of the new type of warp speed or warp travel comes with it the threat of oh my oh my look at this alien race just found you, right? And for whatever reason, it's just a horrible horrible murder monster. As soon as they saw those bodies, they said they're braided, like they all knew what it was except for Michael. So I assume this is something that they've encountered before. Right, but to, to Craig's point, though, I think it, it is very possible that they traveled somewhere and picked up this life form by accident, almost like a xenomorph, right, and brought it back. Well, and that's, that's another thing I think would make more sense with his um, – with. Uh, Lorca's little menagerie is if they have this ability to be anywhere, wherever they want, then, you know, it makes sense that they've seen things that the flagship of the Federation hasn't because they they got there first because they could go anywhere. 
Also very true. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I, I, I do want to say that I think it's really cool that we get to see non-humanoid aliens on a regular basis on this show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because pretty much before this, you know, it was either some abstract energy being, right, or it looked like a human with, you know, prosthetics. Um, and now we've had, you know, in the very first episode, we have the aliens on the desert planet, and now we've got um, this creature that are just very not human, but look really good. Yeah, it's not just Nagilam's smeared face and Next Generation that, right. you know, it's just a human face he's smeared with with whatever but mm-hmm. actual aliens that are distinct and almost kind of like the and this is not an insult it no and it's not necessarily a comparison but it's almost kind of got the uh the star wars alien vibe to it where yeah, that's, when it was chasing them around it was reminding me of those weird roly-poly aliens from uh force awakens that were chasing around han solo yeah hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely if credit where credit's due, the Orville had uh, a non-bipedal uh, alien on their, their crew first. But that's, that, uh, that's true. That's true. Slime blob. Yeah, nor, nor McDonald. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I will say, though, so in the scene where we've got Michael Burnham in the uh, the the trust the ever-trusty Jeffrey's tubes, which I, I loved seeing those, um, it, it did feel like she was outrunning that creature a little too easily. Well, once she was in the Jeffrey's tube, I think size played a factor. I think it was getting stuck a little bit. Hmm. Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's a possibility. Also, uh, she was a really good crawler. She was like... <laughs> <laughs> she was moving. She's an Olympic crawler. An Olympic crawler. Um. So, okay. So the, the main point, then, of Discovery's mission is to create this new, faster than warp drive, almost instantaneous type of flight that um, they, for some reason, are, are not calling quantum entanglement. They're using some, you know, trekno babble for it. Um, is there any way they can be successful in their mission and have this still adhere to canon? Well, that's that's kind of why I was thinking that maybe this ultimately ends up with the Kittimer Accords, because isn't that the the kind of armistice that comes out of this whole war? Well, I thought the Kittimer Accords were what they were signing at Kittimer in Star Trek VI. Yeah, but I know uh, that was the agreement to finally have like a long-term peace between the Klingons and Federation. Yeah. Which happens in six. So, uh, or maybe it, maybe it ends up somehow tying into their future discovery of, you know, transwarp technology that, that the Borg are using and that Voyager kind of messes around with somewhat. That the Excelsior had for ten minutes? Yeah, that they had for ten minutes until, you know... Scotty had to ruin everything. And, you know, <laughs> I took out, took out these ten. You know, I know enough about technology. Take out ten random parts of a machine. Who knows what's going to happen? But <laughs> well, and here's here's my wild prediction for the future of the show is um, Brian Full originally said what he wanted to do with uh, Discovery was have the show each season be set in a different era of Star Trek so that it could eventually catch up with. Um, where people actually wanted it to be in the future. Uh, so maybe the end of this arc of Discovery sees the Discovery not move in space, but move in time. Huh. So maybe we don't hear about it because it's in the future. It is a very Trek thing to do time travel, of course. There's been 
many an amazing time travel episode. So if they do that, you have my attention. Like that would be really, really cool if they just can't travel back for some reason and they end up stuck in the future. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. And I did like the, um, the introduction of, uh, uh, Stamets, that science officer that's working with Michael Burnham. He's such a jerk. <laughs> he, he's, he's such a jerk, but I like, cause he goes on that rant about our oh, technology has been co, you know, co-opted by that warmonger lore, uh, you know, Lorca. Right. I, I, I kind of like seeing the, the scientists. They, it always happens in the background. The scientists finally speaking up going, you know, I made this technology. And again, it was a little bit of a throwback to, you know, the Kelvin timeline with Scotty saying that about Admiral Marcus. You know, what about Starfleet stealing my, my transwarp technology or whatever he did? Um, yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of happening again. It is interesting because different timelines. It's a totally different kind of ship. I mean, the the uh, the original Enterprise, I guess, if you want to count Archers, you know, was the first Warp 5 vessel, you know, so it was really designed for deep exploration alone. Kirk's Enterprise was, you know, designed to go to the frontier as well and was a somewhat of a battle cruiser. The Constitution class could definitely hold up in a fight. Picard's, of course, you know, was this mixture of the most powerful ship in the fleet, but also had families aboard and a crew, you know, and company of a thousand. Um, this is like the first true science vessel that we get to see do its real mission since Voyager, which of course, yes, was a science vessel was, you know, not able to complete that mission. Um, so it is an interesting dynamic, you know, Michael Burnham's was walking through the ship in the beginning and, you know, the, one of the prisoners says, what's with all the silver, all with all the silver shirts, you know, she, she says, yeah. you know, it's a science vessel. Um, yeah. Do Do you think then we'll see a lot of battles? Do you think we'll we'll see anything like that, or will this really be a very science driven show? I mean, I, it's supposed to track the progress of the Klingon War, so I assume there will be some some scrapes here and there. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see anything like the DS Nine massive battles. Yeah. Um, but I I do think there's going to be stuff where as they pursue or continue the pursuit for additional technology and research and information, you know, maybe the Klingons will. Somehow the Klingons are going to figure out, you know, what is it, what's going on with this discovery? Everywhere that we see this ship, it's always doing something. And maybe you get that the Klingons start going after the discovery on purpose. Maybe. Um, I'm just, I'm not, I'm curious how it would hold up in a fight. We haven't seen any of its weapon abilities yet at all, other than it shot a few what appear to be not normal photon torpedoes at the Glen to blow the Glen yeah. up. So I guess the question is, does it also have experimental weapons? Would would make absolute sense if they're continually messing with technology, because even a regular torpedo that moves faster would, would be a huge advantage. Yeah. Or if a torpedo could be sent somehow through mushroom space, whatever they travel through. <laughs> That's, yeah, they, they go into spore space or mushroom space, whatever we want to call it, fires its torpedoes and the torpedoes go wherever the ship was, and then the ship immediately disappears again. That would be pretty. That would be pretty crazy. Um, I guess if the ship is Section Thirty-One, if Lorca is Section Thirty-One, then that would actually explain a lot of things. Because even if they do accomplish this type of, of engine technology, Section Thirty-One may not share it with the rest of the Federation, since they're not necessarily sanctioned. 
That would also explain how they can just show up anywhere in, like, DS9, like, spooks. Maybe they hook their teleporters into the, the Spore network and just te- teleport anywhere. Ooh. Now, to see, that's, that's very interesting. Okay. So maybe, maybe Section 31 makes perfect sense, because this just helps them be as covert as possible. Yeah. And they wouldn't want to overuse the technology, because they don't really want anybody to know that they have it. That's a yeah. good point. And especially if they're trying to use it to help win a major war that they're dealing with. And then at the same time, they don't have to say how many ships have it or who all is using it. It's just like, look, we use it now and then to win the stuff we need to win and then move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. So I'm, I'm, as we talk about it more and more, I'm definitely feeling fairly confident that that's kind of the direction that we're going. Such a good premise, too. Ugh, I love it. <laughs> they're, just, they're just like behind the scenes, like, because if, if the big question all the fans have is like, how does this tie into the prime timeline? How have we never heard of this ship if there's such a big deal? I mean, that's the perfect answer is they're like, they're completely behind the scenes, behind enemy lines, pulling strings, but not, not making news headlines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. It's a, definitely a real possibility. Um, so, I guess then that that's kind of the main episode. Uh, that's pretty much everything that happens. Um, Are we not going to talk about the uh, the Vulcan martial arts where you know Burnham beats the crap out of two people in the lunchroom and <laughs> everybody just kind of everybody's just standing there and watching? So do you, do you almost making it give you that idea? Did the uh, did that security commander know that was going to happen and purposely not let it get stopped until she needed to? Also, where was Spock when she was training? <laughs> well, I, never seen him flip anybody. No, he never really needed to, though. He let Kirk do all that stuff. Um, but uh, but it is interesting because basically you've got Commander Landry, you know, makes the offhanded comment about how Vulcans should stick to logic. So I wonder if those two are ever going to come to blows. No, yeah, that's a good point. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> Another thing. Landry, did you get a vibe with her and Lorca? Are they hooking up? Oh, yeah. Or maybe, I don't know if it's reciprocated, but from mm. her to him it is, at least, I think. Yeah, there was definitely a, uh, a closeness in that, that near-the-end scene when they were together in his ready room. See, that's interesting. I, I didn't get it from that perspective. I thought it was a way to show that the two of them are on the same page, but maybe not the rest of the crew. Right, like, um, you know, uh, St- uh, Stamets doesn't like Lorca. He doesn't like the military. He doesn't want his technology used for war. But Landry, on the other hand, she wants, you know, she's ready to rumble with the Klingons. That and something that Lorca said to uh, Burnham about, you know, I'm picking, I'm basically, essentially, I'm picking the people I need to help win this war. So everybody's on there for, pur- like, a purpose. Even Tilly, who's, you know, allergic to air or whatever. And she's there for, I mean, she's got to be there for a reason. Well, she must be, you know, she, she's obviously very intelligent and capable or she never would have, you know, been able to succeed in the Academy. Um, and she's in the experimental engine program. You know, she might just be a number cruncher, as they said, but, you know, it's still a difficult job that somebody has to do in the most sensitive area of the ship. Well, also she took, she took point on the party and stood between them and the monster and said like, come come out or whatever she was she was pretty badass on the ship that and i actually got to, i'm gonna give tilly a lot of credit because she did one of the most human things i've seen in star trek in a while 
when she tells Burnham, oh, the, we got to sign stations or whatever. Oh. You can't have the station next time. <laughs> yeah. And then she flat out, she, and then she flat out tells her later, she's like, I'm sorry for that. I was just, I'm intimidated by you. I was worried if you're next to me, nobody's ever going to recognize me for my skills. I'm like, that, that is such a human characteristic of being, of you're scared of being drowned out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I like that. I like that kind of character thing. It's, it, again, it just adds to her appeal. Also, speaking of uh, very human things that characters did in this episode, Michael said shit. That's a first for Star Trek TV episodes. Yeah. When she was trying to distract the monster, she said shit, it worked, and ran away. (laughs) uh, They're really trying to use that MA rating that they got. (laughs) Yeah. Um, on similar similar lines, by the way, since she, of course she's uh, she was on The Walking Dead, uh, AMC has given The Walking Dead permission to say the F word twice a season. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. I see. Um, so there you go. I was just reading something here, and I gotta I gotta look it into it more, and make sure it's actually real. But they're saying that Harry the Harry Mud is going to be in nine of the episodes. Yeah, on IMDb it also says Michelle Yeoh is going to be in 14 of the episodes. I'm not sure if those numbers are accurate. Yeah, I don't think that can well, be Well, I mean, it, it says that Jason Isaacs is in 15 of them, and he's not in the first two. He's not in the first so, two. Or what? <laughs> <laughs> he was there the entire he's time. He's that android yeah. robot that yeah. we never see again. Oh, um, where's the android robot? Those bastards, why did we, they take that away? We got that kind of... Um, I don't know the the cyborg kind of girl on this episode. Dennis. It, yeah, she had half her sh- half of her um, head shaved, but she had that I don't know bionic implant of some kind. But yeah, so she she was the one I was talking about last week. She was at uh, on the Shinzao. She was at, at the helm. She was the woman who was on the bridge there. Yeah, that's why they have that uh, moment of recognition at the beginning. Oh. Yeah, they still haven't given her any lines, but she is a named character, so she's I guess she's going to say something. I imagine that's got to come back around, right? I mean, they just didn't have time for it yet. Well, yeah. and it better explains her cold reaction to to Burnham, and it's not just because of the whole mutiny thing. It's because look at my look at my uh-huh. face. You know, this <laughs> this happened in that battle, and if it goes along with the lines, if they're blaming Michael Burnham for the war, then it, that all that all kind of adds to it. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And again, I'll I'll say it's not her fault. <laughs> she was attacked. Well, yeah, it's not her they fault. Told her to do. <laughs> And the Klingons were going to flat out attack, anyways. Yeah, I mean they are they attacked the the satellite. Was, they started it. I will say now that we we haven't met all the cast yet, I think they're still going to be introducing some characters. But one thing I like is there's not there's not a single character right now that I've seen that that I just dislike. You know, I thought the engineer, the scientist engineer guy, was going to start annoying me, but then the more he was on screen, I was like, I actually kind of like him. Um, yeah, they definitely humanize Stamens by by having the conversation between him and the guy in the the Glen, and um, how they were together, and then they got separated to double their work. I mean, it's you know, and, yeah. Then obviously we know what happened to the Glen, uh-huh. and they, the the destruction of the Glen. It still reminds me of that uh, that episode from TNG about the USS Lantry where the crew died from old age, right. And uh, as the Enterprise, the Enterprise destroyed it with a single torpedo. It's kind of the same thing here. It's something horrible happens to the crew of the Glen, and the Discovery is like, "All right, the ship is still pretty useful, but we got we got to just destroy it anyways, because we don't know what's going on with it." Now that was an interesting choice uh, because you know it begs the question of, "You're it's a time of war. Do you not need any of those materials?" Yeah, do you not need anything? I mean, 
That was one of the jokes of Deep Space Nine is they were starting to build ships just out of random components from mm-hmm. different ships. Which makes sense. It's it's wartime, right? So you've got the, this, the, the Glenn, which is a very large ship for the time frame. You're telling me that none of those components are valuable even though the crew was able to walk around. Like, there, there's obviously life support, you know? The, li- the lights work. Yep. There's power. You don't want to salvage any of that. Though they said that they were on the fringes of Klingon space and they are completely covert, so they couldn't do like a full-fledged, you know, recovery operation. And it's got the the crazy secret mushroom drive, so they got to blow it up just to hide that from their enemies. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. Maybe they were just worried about it falling into Klingon hands. It's a good point. So I guess at this point, then. Um, how do you feel overall about the episode? I felt like this was significantly stronger than the first two. I was I was not bored at all, even though I felt very bored during the first two. Um, how about you guys? I loved it. I mean, it's I, I wish I hadn't seen the first two episodes, so this could have been my first taste of Discovery, because it's so good. So good. I'm, I'm with Jeremy. It was... Um... It was a very entertaining episode, and it, I got a huge amount of throwback, old school feelings to the original series with this, with the kind of the, the goofy science stuff and just the the boarding party action, and you know we had our red shirt moment where the random security guy was killed. Yeah, they kept and... showing him. I was like, oh, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, he's, dead. <laughs> he's dead. He's dead. You see him, but he's not saying anything. Like he is definitely mm-hmm. dying. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple. Really good um, graphical moments too. Just and you, you can see that the the CG is is movie quality with the uh, the runabouts leaving the bay. Just that that thing of it picking up and popping through the shield just looks so perfect. It's like exactly how I've always wanted that to look. And speaking yes. of the shuttles, for anybody out there who's still arguing about what the three letter abbreviation for the show is, the shuttle says DSC on it. So that's what we're going to go with. DSC, it is. But I, and I, I got to, I got to give credit to the cast and crew because I'm starting to get that feel that the chemist, there's actually chemistry on mm-hmm. set, and we've all seen those, we've all seen those shows where people are fantastic actors, but there's no chemistry between them, mm-hmm. and that's happened in Star Trek before, and I'm not seeing that. Maybe it'll happen in the later episodes. We're only one episode into the main storyline, but overall, I like their interactions. I like their engagements with each other, with each other, um, and they're all kind of. Aside from Tilly and Michael Burnham, they're all kind of independent and unique of their own. I mean, aside yeah. from Landry and Lorca, whatever their thing is, but they're all they're all still feeling like feeling their way around each other, which it's kind of cool. You get to almost grow with the episode or with the series. I can't wait to see the away mission that's just Saru and Tilly. <laughs> I feel like that'll be an interesting combo of them just. <laughs> I, can, I can only hope. Yep. I can only hope. Yeah, that walk and talk scene with Saru and Michael with the the blueberries and and just kind of like him him kind of being empathic with her about her her time in jail and and her you know showing regret but not really showing regret like kind of reserved she wouldn't she wouldn't flat out say I'm sorry he had to pull it out of her just that that little moment was just such a good like. Oh, so good. Well, it shows that, you know, he understands that she is sorry that the bad things happened, but she just still thinks that she made the right call. And that's why he says the line about how, you know, he thinks that she's dangerous because at the end of the day, yeah, of course she has regret and feels remorse and doesn't want bad things to happen, but she still feels justified in her own reasoning. 
Yeah. It yeah. still leaves me a little bit confused that they seem to be conflating three different things from the first two episodes. It seems like her mutiny, her attacking of the Klingon that she killed, and the beginning of the war, which was the conflict that the Klingons started by lighting the beacon. It seems like the the whole of Starfleet are treating those three things like they're the same incident. And I, I got to go back and rewatch the episode because I believe there's a glimpse um, in Lorca's office. He's looking at a map of the Klingon Empire and the and Star and the Federation, kind of saying progress of the war. I believe it is. I want to go see if I can pull it mm. up again because it would make it would make perfect sense. Because if they're at war, a lot has happened in six months. I'm assuming. Yeah, it shows the the battle lines and the the wavy lines separating the red dots from the blue dots. That's just I like the, I like throw-ins like that because if they're at war, you're going to always have something like that up on the screen somewhere. Sure, of course, yeah. Um, so then at this point, you know, we've seen the discovery. We know what it looks like for the most part. We didn't get a great look at the bridge, uh, but it's got a lot of the familiar sounds, the beeps and the whistles and things like that. Uh, there's switches and buttons, but there's heads up kind of minority report displays and things of that nature. Uh, does any of that bother you guys? No, I mean, it, it takes it out of out of the canonical, like, everything is, is a flat panel display in the future of the Prime timeline, and now we have holographic dis- displays where she's looking at exploded, like, straight-up computer code. Yeah, Which I saw somebody say that they found out what that code was that she was looking at, but I lost what it was. Yeah, I believe it was C-sharp. <laughs> it's, none of that really bothered me, because they're kind of making the TV show that they probably wish they could have made in the 60s. Right. Um, but I will say one thing that I absolutely love, and I love it when science fiction shows do this, is they, they, they essentially, they have, you know, I don't know what to call it, a commissary, they have a lunchroom. Yeah. Where people go... And get food, and it's not just, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a 10-forward feel, but it almost feels like it's just a dedicated food room. This is where we go mm-hmm. to eat. And I, I like stuff like that because it, it, gives, it adds that human aspect to it. It's not just going to, you know, a replicator and, you know, cat food option five <laughs> for, you know, spot. Yeah. I, like the, I like the realistic stuff like that. Yeah, that was one of my favorite things about Voyager was that, you know, they, they showed them all eating together a lot. Because, you know, it's a small ship, a small crew. And I like how we're not straying too far from that. You know, Deep Space Nine had the promenade, of course. Um, and so I, I like this. I think it's a nice way for them to have a set that they can use down the road here to have a lot of kind of casual interactions. Yeah, exactly. And Vulcan martial arts where you're throwing lunch trays <laughs> at people. Of course, of course. Um, so, all right, we're kind of running out of time here. Do you guys have any final thoughts on Context is for Kings? Uh, it's a great first episode. If you haven't seen the other two, watch I this agree. first. I agree, and if, if people are scared to give Star Trek Discovery a chance, they need to start with this episode, because it has that Star Trek feel and vibe from the opening until the, until the very closing minute. This is, it's like, the it's the return of Star Trek. Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I'm with you guys. Give this, give this a try. Uh, I, I do think that there is some important stuff that's done in the first two episodes that are, you know, referenced in this third one here that may be confusing uh, if you haven't seen them. But this is a better episode. It is a more, uh, it's a, it's a better established beginning for the show. Um, there's a six month time gap, and so I think that this, it's a good place to kick off. But 
the first two episodes do lay some character groundwork that I think is important. Um, a couple of, uh, of things before we sign off. We are going to uh, be doing a contest on the, uh, the network here coming up. Um, I was lucky enough to contribute to a project at ATV Publishing called um, – they have a book series called Outside In. And the, uh, the book Make It So is based on The Next Generation. And I got to write an essay about one of the episodes. Uh, my episode was Ethics, which is the episode where Worf uh, breaks his back and wants to commit ritual suicide. Um, you know, real light stuff. Uh, anyway, um, I, that book is now out. It is available at atbpublishing.com slash TNG. But if you would like an opportunity to win a copy, we are going to have a copy to give away, but you'll have to tune in next week to find out how you will do that. So, you know, that's just, yeah, a tease for next week, but we'll also be talking about episode uh, four of, of Discovery, which, uh, Jeremy, what is episode four called? Oh, God, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, the, the Butcher Doesn't Care. Okay, the Butcher... The butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. Yes, yes, I expect everybody to have that memorized by next week. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we'll be talking about episode four next week on Red Shirts and Runabouts. You can find us at heroespodcasts.com and at Heroes Podcasts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr, as well as uh, Twitch. And we are on iTunes, Google Play, and Blog Talk Radio. Please leave us a review, especially on iTunes, uh, if you listen to us there. And uh, that will help people find our show and get us more conversation. We want to hear from you guys. So if you would like to talk to us uh, directly, you can go to heroespodcast.com and go to the contact form and select the show. Or you can email us, redshirts at heroespodcast.com. Uh, for you guys, do you have any social media handles where people can reach out to you individually? Uh, I am Zen Munkin on Twitter. Yeah, on tw- on Twitter, I am the underscore Bittersteel. And I am the Star Trek Dude on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you guys for tuning in. We will catch you next week. Live long and prosper. See ya. See ya. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.